I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist and the host of this podcast, From Crisis to Connection. This is a podcast about relationships. The relationships with others, of course, but also the relationship with ourselves and the relationship with our higher power. I believe we experience our deepest joys when we're in harmony with these relationships. But when we lose that connection to ourselves and others through our own unhealthy behaviors like addictions, infidelity, secrecy, abuse, and so on, or we lose it by being betrayed by someone else's choices, it throws us into crisis. Getting out of crisis and living in connection isn't always straightforward or easy, but it is possible. And that's why every week I bring you incredible guests who share their life experiences and expertise to help you move from crisis to connection. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Stephen and Real Croshaw, a couple who haven't only been working their recovery for over 15 years, but also a couple who took that recovery and felt a call to help others who are struggling with the impact of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And they're the founders of the SA Lifeline, which is a nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to recovering individuals and healing families from the effects of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And Stephen and Real have been kind enough to come on the Illuminate podcast and tell their story. I'm going to have them back in another episode to talk more about their work with SAL 12 Step and some of the work that they're doing and make available tons of resources so that you all can understand what a great resource they are and their organization is to help people be able to heal from the impact of these things. But Stephen and Real, their story is so important. It's so powerful. And they're very honest and very open about their struggles. And they're just so down to earth and humble about their own journey. And it's just a real thrill talking to them. I've known Stephen and Real since probably around 2007, 2008, and have interacted with them, been in their home, spent lots of time with them over the years, coordinating and communicating. And they're just great people who really care about helping others. And I hope that will come through. I hope you can feel that from them as you listen to this. They are all about giving people hope and helping people stay accountable and promoting true healing and change. And they are making a big difference in the world. So I'm just really thrilled that they were willing to come on here and spend some time telling their story and offering all of us a glimpse into what it takes to really heal from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. So let's jump right in with my interview with Stephen and Real Croshaw. Real and Stephen, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, it's nice to catch up with you guys. I met you guys, goodness, probably what, 12 years ago or more, and or even longer, maybe 2007. And it's been, uh, it's been great to watch your work grow and the influence you guys are having. And, and just as we've kept up with each other over the years, it's just been amazing how much good has come out of your guys' efforts. And so I want And we'll talk about that in a future episode. I want people to really get to know you first, though, and know where you've come from. And so I think we should just jump in and tell your story. It's remarkable. And I'd love for you guys to just tell it however you tell it. Let each of you take your turns and however you want to do it or together. So take it away, guys. Oh, thanks. Uh We're really good at talking over each other. (laughs) (laughs) After nearly 48 years of marriage, we've... (laughs) You've perfected it, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Whenever you'd like. Okay. Oftentimes when we're asked to tell our story, I will begin. And so I, uh, I'll take the first part of this explanation of our story or yeah. giving some insights, insights into our story. Um, 
I should probably say in the beginning that Real mentioned we've been married for 48 years, which is a miracle in itself. Yeah. We are grateful and blessed to have a wonderful family. And that is an important part of our story. But when I get into my story, really talking about sexual addiction, it, it's, it's not possible to remove the, my behaviors associated with sexual addiction with the double life that I lived. And so I think it's important for, for me to say that part of, of my story is really rehearsed as to behaviors and how they escalated. And the other part of my story is, is our story of how we, how we worked together to be a married couple and have a family. I'm a businessman and a church man as well. And, and as well, I also deal with sexual addiction. So my story of sexual addiction really begins early in my life. I was introduced to pornography accidentally by finding a pornographic magazine when I was six years old. And I looked at the magazine and then I gave it to my mother. And the experience I had in that first exposure, I would describe as euphoric. I was obviously drawn to what I was seeing, but in my innocence, I knew it was wrong, but I, I didn't understand really what was going on with it. After I looked at the magazine, and I'm sure I looked at it completely, I gave it to my mother, and I don't remember anything beyond that. I, I just remember her taking the magazine from me, and I'm confident if she had said something to me about it, I would have remembered, but I, I have no recollection of anything being said beyond that. And the challenge was, is I was drawn to it and then would look for, in the same places that I had found this magazine, I'd look again, mm -hmm. repeatedly over a period of time. And so I was really kind of growing in my attraction to pornography, introduced to masturbation or sex with self. Around the age 10, friends suggested that something that I would want to do. And anyway, so I went down that pathway. So I was actively involved in sexually acting out as really a young boy. Mm -hmm. and never talking about it, not, nor was I given any insights into what I needed to be careful with by parents or leaders or teachers. So I was kind of on my own, not realizing the path what I was on. I've often thought, when, when would I have crossed the threshold of addiction? And I, I really believe it was around the age of 14 when I was making honest efforts to stop and not successful not willing to talk about it. So behaviors escalated. I was uh, actually physically acting out with girls my age by the time I was 15. And that progressed on ultimately through high school. So my early introduction, I don't think was very unusual in comparison with the stories of many people that I have come to know in the work of recovery. So it's very common what I think my story is, early introduction and then hiding the behavior. I met Rill when I was working out of state, met her at church. And prior to meeting her, I, I was honestly working to be a better man. <clears throat> and uh, I had broken up in a relationship and I wanted to be worthy of somebody who I could find that, that I could love and that met the expectation I had of what a great woman would be. Well, I met Rill at church and was just so attracted to her. and because I was only able to uh, be in that area for a short time, I really actively pursued our, through our dating process, 
the possibilities of marriage. And so we were engaged only after a short period of dating, about four weeks. So with that, I then moved away and we didn't really know each other and had only known each other for four weeks. And then a week in between when I came back to Montana where she was going to school. And uh, so we were married without knowing each other very well. I moved away to work. I was being, I was transferred. Mm-hmm. The important part of the story for me at this point is I chose not to talk to Rel about any of my past experiences with any sexual behavior. Okay. And I talked to people about the possibility of, of mentioning it to her. I had confessed to various church leaders along the way. I actually went to my church leader at the time after I was engaged, talked to him about it, and jointly, <laughs> sadly, I really was pushing this direction. I didn't want to tell real. I thought it would, it would uh, stop our, our, you know, the, the marriage. Right. So I didn't tell her. She came into the marriage believing that I was fully worthy of her, and I felt like I had properly taken care of the issues I had been dealing with. I'd confessed them. I had worked to stop, and I thought that I had, which, again, is common to a lot of stories. That was my story. She entered the relationship without an understanding of what I was dealing with, and clearly I didn't know what I was dealing with when it came to addiction. So I entered the marriage thinking that this is in behind me. Within a matter of a few months, I was back looking at pornography, and that combined with sex with self. Because my business was traveling, I was often traveling alone, and over a period of years, I learned how to act out in more than pornography and, and sex with self into going into adult establishments, men's strip clubs. And over a period of many years, that progressed all the way on to, porn, to um, acting out with prostitutes. The entire time that that's going on, Real is totally unaware of it. I'm living a complete double life, only acting out on the road when I'm gone. And at the same time, we're having a family. At the same time, I'm serving in positions that I'm called to in in church positions, and our life is going along in what appears to be a very natural and positive way, and I'm living this double life. And so after about 16 years of marriage, living like this, with the progression having gone all the way to that point, out of tremendous fear, I came forward and shame and told Real for the first time about behaviors, all of the behaviors, starting from the very beginning all the way through to that point. And it was obviously a shock to her, and it, but a burden that I had carried that is now that I felt like I had to lift because I could, couldn't carry it anymore. Right, right. And the, at that point, so I, out of fear and shame, I come forward. I, I let her into the story now. She is, and she'll talk about her experience there. But together now we're in this, and neither of us know anything, nor did any of the people that we would go to for help know anything about what I was dealing with or what she was dealing with. The process was don't look back. Don't talk about this anymore. Move forward in a positive way in your life. And you guys are really good people. You're going to do just fine. Move on. And so that was it. And interestingly, Rill and her trauma would on occasion bring up the issues that she was fearful that I would repeat. And I would, my answer to her was, we don't talk about this anymore. This is behind us. What's oh, yeah. wrong? 
you know. What's yeah, happening? right. You had your marching orders already. It was just move yeah, forward. Right? Those were the marching orders that yeah. we had. I had no help from any professionals and literally no help from anyone that knew anything. Right, yeah. right. So uh, this age, I'm about 36, 37, real, you're younger than me. So we are on our own now. And I was committed to working recovery or living in recovery, but I didn't know what that meant. Right. I mean, that, I, that to me meant I don't act out anymore. Well, I went three years without acting out. And, but I continued in the same lifestyle that I had of being a traveling man. So three years, quote unquote, sober, but I wouldn't say that I was living in recovery, but I was sober sober from the actions of behaviors that of acting out. So relapsed and then hid that out of shame for another seven years. I didn't go right back to prostitutes the first day. It seems like it's interesting. Start from where I was a little bit here, a little bit there, a little yeah. bit, a little, little bit. And then it's in a relatively short period of time, I would say within a couple of years, I was back to the same behaviors. And um, I lived that way from that first disclosure to real for another 10 years and the seven of those 10 years in hiding. Mm. And during that time, I, I, was, I came to the point where I was so distraught about not being able to stop that I sold my interest in, in the company that I was an owner in. I moved my family from our home that was paid for on a farm of 80 acres to um, 120 miles away as I was basically thinking if I get off the road, if I change my location, I can stop this behavior. But I was totally unwilling to talk about it. So I was hiding it, but yet trying to do these things on my own to stop. And um, again, out of fear and shame, came forward for the second time. So 10 years after my first disclosure. And it was really deja vu all over again. Oh, yeah. at that. So real absorbed that. Neither of us knew what we were dealing with, but real really should talk about the story at this point. Maybe if you pick it up real from where I was and the first disclosure and where or wherever you think you would add value to what we're talking about here, what was going on with you? Well, at the first disclosure, we had five children. And I was, I believe that as I look back now, and as much as I know about trauma, yeah, sexual addiction, mm-hmm. I believe that I was in shock. But of course, no one was around me. And we weren't really talking to people about details. And so nobody would really no to say you have PTSD going on. Oh, yeah. But my background is you just fix things. You work hard, you get out there and you work. I say I've got the Montana grit in me. It's like, okay, then the next step is for me to forgive and he says he's going to be better. And so I must trust and believe, right? So the second time I was mad. I was mad. But I in, in a Amongst that, that feeling of frustration and are you kidding me, mm-hmm. was this sadness of, I think I've done everything I can, but maybe I haven't done it enough. And so he feels relieved when he lets this go after 10 years, right? <laughs> and I'm on the floor, literally. Oh, yeah. Ball- balling my eyes out. But then I have five kids. I've got to pick myself up. Well, at that point, I had seven. We had seven. And just pick yourself up and go for it. But I started getting on the phone. I wanted, we had, I had read one book called Willpower is Not Enough. And I started thinking, maybe there's something more to this than he's choosing this. And so I made phone calls 
and I had to find the author. And he actually said to me, I'm 18 months out. But, and after he heard my story, he was like, I'll see you on my lunch hour next week on Tuesday. Is this Mark? No, it was Bird. Oh, Dean Bird. Bird. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, somebody is helping us. <laughs> and, and yet, so he helped us find a therapist that we went to for a year. And of course, he thinks he's good. And I'm thinking, is he getting it? <laughs> yeah. And so that takes us to, you know, one year of therapy, I think four meetings of SA 12-step, which he didn't like. And It's interesting if you look at this situation. So I come forward second time. I disclose everything. Will frantically starts looking for resources and help. Of course. She's now taking the lead. I'm kind of coming along for the ride. And um, Dr. Bird, there's some funny stories that I want to take time with you now. But anyway, he kindly worked to find us a therapist he felt good about. The challenge was the therapist did not have experience enough for my addiction and no experience for real trauma. And that so, was a lot of years ago. That was a long time ago. That was like 25 years so, ago. Yeah, so wow. we, we were in that situation of real taking the lead, me dragging my feet, a therapist that's really not qualified. And then this is a sad part of my story. I was introduced to Sexholics Anonymous. At that time, I went to four meetings and I felt so out of place. I was in the meeting feeling like I'm going to see somebody I know. I'm going to feel, and so I I felt shame. I was in the meeting judging other people. I was feeling pride. I did not want to accept that I was dealing with an addiction. I felt like that was demeaning. So I'm, I'm in these meetings for four weeks, and I finally say, I'm, these aren't doing me any good. I don't feel comfortable there, and I'm not going to go back. It's interesting. I had a, I had a white book that was pristine for many years because <laughs> it sat it. in a drawer. I hid it. <laughs> he hid it. I hid it so drawer. nobody could ever find it. But it, it was white. It was perfect. But anyway, <laughs> it had one name written in it. And uh, so that, if you look at the second disclosure, what happened and how important is that to understand what that experience was. Well, three years go by sober, three years relapse. I relapse again. I hide it again. And it's really deja vu. I won't go into a lot of that. But I'm now hiding and as a two-time loser, now a three-time loser. And I am acting out and I can't stop. I'm in tremendous fear now because of everything to lose and I don't dare come forward again. Well, I'm arrested on August 25 of 2005 for picking up a prostitute. That's a whole long story. And that was life-changing for me. I believe that God's hand was in that experience. And it, it just so devastated me. And I was so fearful at that point. So I go in a, to an attorney a day or two later. He tells me if I didn't, I said I didn't admit guilt. I was all these things. He says, well, I can get you off. I think at that point that I've escaped being caught. and. Uh, so no one's going to find out supposedly. Well, I couldn't live with myself. So two and a half weeks later, I come forward for the third time. And that part of the story is I now tell Rill again where I'm at. And so she is obviously to the point of, can I, is this, I'm this, done. this guy is, <laughs> oh, yeah. not, he's not worthy of me committing any more to him. I wanted to be done. And so, and, and she wasn't yelling me. No, I wasn't. I mean, angry. It was like I was like, I'm done. I think when I talk about surrender in the work of recovery, uh-huh. the surrender process for me, I think 
the big surrender was on my front lawn on uh, September 12th of 2005, when Stephen told me he had been arrested picking up a prostitute. And I wasn't angry. I had a few tears and it was like, this is over. But I had this, I knew that instead of me trying to fix him, that I could only go to one place and it was going to be God is going to take care of me. Mm. And that was a really interesting thing because, and maybe an odd feeling because you would wonder why in the world this had happened for 30 years right? and how I could say, now is, has God not been taking care of me? But for some reason on our front lawn, I turned my hands up and said, take him. And I surrendered him to the only power I knew that could take care of it and take care of me. And at that moment, I had no idea if he could change, if he would change, Mm -hmm. and what would happen. Would I have a home? Would I have the financial means to take care of? We had five married children at that point, and we still had two boys at home. Would, Would we be able to survive? But I didn't worry about it at that moment. And that was such an awesome feeling, but so sad. And that experience has helped me to remember when I, I need to surrender the things I cannot change. That was the big one. Because I could, in my life, change a lot of things, which is my Montana grit. Yeah, I love the imagery of, of the open hands, palms up, right? Because I, I know in your book, really, you talk about the imagery of being like, I'm, I'm a handcart pioneer and I can put my sick husband in the back of this thing and pull him across the plains and I've got that kind of, will, you know. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but a pioneer with open hands surrendering would seem kind of useless, right? (laughs) They're not doing their part. They're not pushing the wheel. But here you are just in complete surrender, which is like a total 180 from every reflex you had been, you had done up to that point, right? Yes. And at that point, I just was open to what God wanted me to do, not what he wanted me to do. It was, I'm not going to take care of this for you anymore. Like you were released from Stephen. I was released and I was released even from, and I tell women that I work with, and I've told Stephen even in the last year or two, if there's addict behavior, resentment, blame, these behaviors that circle around addict act, I care for you, but I won't take care of you in Mm. that place. And that is such a freeing feeling, that's a boundary also, that says, I hope that you'll go to the place that you can get the help that you need. And it's God and others in recovery and that kind of work. But, you know, people will look at me and go that the elevator must not go to the top with with that woman. She's clueless. And I'm not clueless. (laughs) No, that's the last word I would use for you, Real. I think it's important to note Real's reaction was not it was not to yell and scream and hit and flail. It was to surrender. Yeah. And, um, and know that she could look to God, the God of her understanding for assistance and certainly loved by her family. Her father never did betray her. He was a father who was loyal to her as a father and committed to making right decisions. That was a powerful help for That's her. That's been a real gift yeah. that my dad... And I know so many women don't have that gift where their fathers were either disconnected or they betrayed. Yeah. 
their trust. And I, so I'm, I'm grateful for that gift. She had a male figure that she could trust. Yeah. And that, so that wasn't me, but it was her, her father who is now deceased, but I love dearly. Yeah. Who, who gratefully, so she didn't become a man. She wasn't a man hater. She just had to turn it over. I need to talk just a bit about my own surrender, that decision to come forward. After the arrest? I, after the arrest, time went by that I, I continued to carry the weight thinking I could not come forward. It was in the middle of the night, actually on September 10th and 11th. September 11th was a Sunday morning on 2005. In the middle of the night, I just wrestled with, uh, I started out just trying to figure out how I was going to escape this and the feelings of fear and anger and shame towards myself. And it was just inescapable. It was so overwhelming. And I thought, you know what I can do is review what I believe and what I don't believe. And I maybe I really don't believe in God. And if I don't believe in God, none of this matters. Mm. So I tried during the night to think about the possibility of maybe I'm not really a believer. I couldn't get down that path. I could not deny that I was a believer. God knew me and he knew that I knew him. So I couldn't get past that. And so it wasn't until I finally said, I'm living this double life, fearing man more than God. And I literally thought that. I thought I'm fearing man more than God. Here, God knows me. He knows what's going on. I'm going to meet him and I'm going to go through this with him. So really, what am I gaining by hiding and carrying this fear? And I made the decision at that point that in spite of, I felt like that the marriage would end. I felt like family and I couldn't be with the family and all the cascading consequences that go on beyond. But I, I said, I can't live with this anymore. I'm willing to, to lose that in order to get right with myself and God. So that was that surrender experience for me. And now as I go back and learn and understand what that means, I literally was working steps one, two, and three. I acknowledged unmanageability, step one. I confirmed that I was a believer, step two. And step three, I decided I would give it over. And I would basically say, okay, God, I'm in your hands. I give it over. So that's where it was at that point. And that story of that coming forward was life-changing for us. And I believe because of what happened there on that God recognized that I was honest in my effort. So he was able to help me. I know that that is a fact. I was honest in my effort. God recognized that. And I was directed. I was directed to the tools I needed that included an incredible 12-step group, a very capable sponsor, an incredible therapist. And the therapist, the fact that we were able to get right in and see him, and he's one of the greatest guys that we know, Todd Olson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he, uh, he made a comment when we went, we all agreed that she would go with me to see the therapist after I was able to identify that's where I needed to go. And gratefully and miraculously, he could see us. So Will went. I think she kind of, I don't know what you, was, you were expecting, but she went with. And we sit down in his office, and I can still remember this vividly. Didn't know him at all. Of course, never met him. I rehearsed my story in more detail than I am right now. So this goes on for 45 minutes. And then I, I'm, I'm done. He didn't interrupt me. And he looked at Rill and said, can you stay with him if he's in recovery? And that was just, you can take it from me. I have no idea what he was talking about. After 32 years of marriage, I thought, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. And I said, I wouldn't know because he lies. Yeah. He lies so well. How am I going to know? And he said three words for you're going to know. Hmm. 
And I asked him a few years ago, I said, how do you say that to every couple that walks in and sits down in your office? And he goes, no, God told me to tell you that. Like, what? You're going to know? And what I have learned, because I'm living with a, a recovering addict. Right. That means there's always a chance, right? If he's not working recovery, he's working on a relapse. And I know that. And so I know what recovery work looks like, but I also work my own recovery so that I know that with that insight, I'm not looking at him trying to criticize and blame and look for things that are off, but I'm going to know if something is off. Mm. And so the thing that I learned that I, what he meant was I could trust my gut and I would trust what the addict looks like, walks like, talks like, thinks like. And I'm not going to stick around for more of that because I've been through that and I know he has the tools and so do I. And it's all about willingness. If he's willing to work, it works. If I'm willing to work, it works. And I, you know, it's unbelievable for some people and still for, for us, it's like a miracle. 15 years. Yeah. Not only sober. But in recovery, working recovery. That's right. Now, is that every day? Is every day sunshine and roses? Not at all. But we have the tools to work that. So I have my boundaries. He has his bottom lines. We work at this. This is not, yeah, we just hope it's gone. But as we were told 15 years ago, it will no longer be this, well, we're just working on re you know, recovering from sexual addiction and trauma, it is now healthy living. And that is what I'm grateful for. Because our children and grandchildren see that example, and a few other people, of what recovery looks like as we work it. That example, hopefully, is helpful for other people in healthy living. I think it's an, beautiful. If we look at where we were at that point, very a total lack of understanding of what recovery takes. Mm -hmm what the work of recovery is and what living in recovery or positive sobriety is. So at that point, it became a process for us. And the powerful thing is, is that we didn't immediately make the decision to end the marriage. I didn't want to go down the path of ending the marriage. And real, real didn't say was, the marriage okay. is going to end today. <laughs> right, right. So at least there we were, the possibility of divorce was on the table, but it it was just there. It wasn't acted on. But my efforts at that point were real and honest. And gratefully, resources came into our lives that I was willing to accept and then work on that were so critical to, at that point, for us to be able to understand addiction, understand later on trauma. The trauma thing didn't come along for several years until after we were actually working recovery. So people were still not understanding betrayal trauma at that right, point. Right, right. It was this conversation about codependency, which we'll never could buy into. So oh, I have my codependent behaviors, but I knew there was something more. But, I knew but, there was something different on this. Yeah, yeah exactly. So at that point, it's, it's what goes on now in this work of recovery. And there's aspects of the family, Real and I working, to, working our own recovery. I'm what my activities are in working recovery. and and it became, it began to work for me. It began to work, excuse me, for real. 
And so over a period of a few months, I was actually out of the house living in an old camper in the back. It was, it was nice. It was nice. <laughs> Gratefully, it wasn't incredible camper cold. in the garage. <laughs> but, but I was living in this camper, but it was a good place for me. And if we really get into the details of our story, the intimacy part of we we don't talk about a lot, but we had to set and obviously set intimacy aside. But I know previously when I had come forward the first and second time, I was looking for validation, and I I never was able to step back and from the feeling that I needed intimacy, and so uh, well more like needed sex, and, well, and in order to feel validated, right, right. A lot that, of men go there. That, that's another way of putting it. Yeah, but it, it, <laughs> okay. it is, I'm looking for validation, not just sex, but yeah, sex is but part that's of the it. way. Yeah. So anyway, we could go into at that point now what we were learning and what that meant to us as we worked recovery, and that just kind of led us down the path where where we where we've gone since then. Yeah. Well, we were glad we have crawled sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but we were led down oh, the pathway. Well, yeah. It wasn't, That's true. It's, we found resources. It's not like, oh, this just happened oh, yeah. by chance. Yeah, but it wasn't. Your, but to your point, real, it wasn't like a hop, skip, and a jump. Like it was, like you said, that's where the grit comes in. It, it's not the grit in ignoring and shoving it away and just you know pretending. It's the grit of of surrender. It's the grit of learning and sacrificing Bound- and boundaries and yeah, all the things that we talk about. So that pioneer grit did come in handy. <laughs> Yeah, and I and one thing I love about you guys and just your your story, your examples, just your and all your contributions is that you guys, you know, you guys work so hard to keep it real, to keep it honest and open. I know that's a huge part of your own healing. You feel called to tell this. I remember writing with you real to a presentation we were we were presenting at together, or maybe I was I don't remember years ago, and you just opened up in this really vulnerable way and just said like, "I never asked for this. I never yeah. asked to like." be on the stage. I never asked to be telling people's total strangers my story, Yeah. but here we are and I'm willing to do it because I know it's where I'm being led. And I've just always really admired and respected both of you for just accepting that call because I know it's blessed a lot of lives. It's blessed my life. It's blessed so many people that I work with. And uh, I know that we could talk forever about so many details of your story. And so uh, we'll go ahead and just wrap this part up now. And I'm going to have you guys back on to talk about, you know, what you guys have built and created to support other people in your same situation. That's been a blessing to so many. So thank you both for once again, just having the courage and the willingness to open up to, you know, this vast audience of people that will hear and listen and, and hopefully be inspired by your story. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. We, we appreciate you. We do. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Stephen and Rill and their organization, SA Lifeline, you can visit salifeline.org or sal12step.org, which is the 12-step arm of SA Lifeline. Both of those websites have tons of great information, much of it free. So definitely one you'll want to bookmark and put as a resource for you and your loved ones. Once again, I'm going to have Stephen and Rill on for the following episode to talk about all of the resources they've created, the SAL 12-step program and what's really required to help couples and individuals heal from the impact of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. So please stay tuned for that. You're not going to want to miss that. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
it's a real honor and pleasure just to be here knowing that you're listening, that there are people out there working hard to make a difference in their own lives and especially in the lives of those around them. So I'd lock arms with you. I join with you in promoting healing and doing good work. Thank you for all your support. Of course, if you have a minute, please leave a rating and a review. It makes a huge difference so people can find this. I appreciate everything you're doing to support this podcast and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.